And um, Rob <clears throat> asked me to speak on this particular passage. And um, St. Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was with the church in uh, Ephesus just in the last three weeks. My wife and I have um, travelled to the Holy Land on pilgrimage with our seven children and had a most extraordinary experience. We went to Israel and Jordan and Turkey. And on the journey, we, uh, we visited Ephesus. Uh, what an extraordinary city it was. And to walk in the footsteps of Paul and John and Timothy and to, to reflect on the message that Jesus had for them in their day and the message that he has for us as pilgrims and us as followers of Jesus today resonates uh, quite strongly with me. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A soldier on active service wants to please his commanding officer and so does not get mixed up in the affairs of civilian life. <clears throat> I reflect on that passage and what he was conveying. How does the word of God inspire me today? How does he speak to me? If I have any insight, it's perhaps because I can reflect back on my own time as a soldier and the dedication and the motivation that was required to achieve any given objective. I think that our Heavenly Father is wanting to prepare us for difficult times that lay ahead. It's not going to be sufficient to just dip our toe in the pond of Christianity and see if we like it. We will get eaten alive and spat out by the enemies that are gathering to destroy us as they were gathering at the time of Timothy in Ephesus. The new atheism is gaining an ascendancy such that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. We need to counter this. We need to counter it with our love of our Saviour and our love of our fellow man. We need to counter it with joy in our hearts and an enthusiasm that the enemy won't be able to match. You see, we've read the book. We know the end of the story. We win. Amen. We win. How can we not be enthusiastic when we know what the end is in store? Along the way, there's going to be some difficult trials and tribulations. That's what Paul is telling us in this scripture. We live in a battleground, not a playground. We live in a battleground, not a playground. How many of us think that life's just jolly and life's for a good time? We live in a battleground, not a playground. 
any false nation, any false notions that we can become a Christian and be blessed and have an easy life is simply not biblical. The prosperity gospel that is preached in some quarters has got no place in the Bible or the epistles of the early Christians. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the world. No, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What are we delivering our children up to? Why are we becoming Christians? Why do we wish to follow the Lord when he promises us this? In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he said we must carry our own cross. In John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19, if the world hates you, just remember it has hated me first. If you belong to the world, then the world would love you as its own. But I chose you from the world and you do not belong to it. Therefore, the world hates you. And finally, in Luke chapter 16, verses 20 to 22, I am telling you the truth. You will cry and weep, but the world will be glad. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is about to give birth to a child, she is sad because her hour of suffering has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets her suffering because of the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice in your joy. No one will take away from you. That's what we look forward to. Quite frankly, I wouldn't be inspired to lay down my life for anything that is so shallow or meaningless as a theology of abundance and prosperity. The world promises us prosperity. The world promises us that if we put our faith in things and baubles, we'll be happy. This is empty and shallow. The things of this world are passing away. The things of this world are passing away. Our hope is eternal. When we were visiting the Holy Land and Jordan and Turkey, we took the opportunity to go to Gallipoli. Lots of Australians make a pilgrimage to Gallipoli. <clears throat> I was there a couple of weeks ago. It was a cold, wintry morning, and we were the only ones present. There was just my wife and our children and our driver and guide. And 
We reflected on the fact that it's nearly 99 years since that fateful morning when the cream of the youth of Australia and New Zealand were landed on the beaches of Anzac Cove. The poignancy of the place and the sheer audacity of what they were attempting to achieve struck us all. What was it in those young men that led them to lay down their lives the way that they did? Their courage and tenacity has inspired us as a nation ever since. When I visited that place, my mind went back to the old caretaker at my school in the 1970s, Pop Malone. Old Pop was there fixing desks. He must have been in his 70s or 80s by that stage. And he was just the school, scare, the school caretaker. And, you know, I would wag classes and go down to his workshop to chat with old Pop. And it was quite extraordinary. I recalled the stories of horror that he told me as a young teenager. He had tears in his eyes as he told how he lost mates. He was there on that morning on the 25th of April, 1915. He told how he lost mates and he told how he witnessed people who were prepared to lay down their lives to save a friend. Some people argue that we shouldn't commemorate Anzac Day, that it glorifies war. There is nothing, nothing that is glorious about war. No, the reason that the soldiers march and the reason that we have to remember and the reason that the youth of our country flock to places like Anzac Cove every year is because there is something that they recognise that is greater than the mundane self-interest that we live our lives by for so much of the rest of our existence. There is something that they recognise that is so much greater than our wants and desires. Something that goes beyond self-interest. Something that is noble. One day a year, when old soldiers march, touches on something of the divine, even if they don't recognise that's what it is. They remember a time in their lives when they believed in something. They remember a time in their lives when they believed in it enough that it was worth dying for. It may have been the only time in their life when someone or something else was more important to them than their own self-preservation or their own happiness. They grasp at something that may have happened decades and decades ago. They reflect on a time when they were something, when they were somebody, when they were prepared to be something bigger than themselves. When we first fall in love and experience that wonderful rush of romance, we touch on that same sort of experience. The other the object of our desire, the object of our love, 
that wonderful person is more important to us than life itself. We surrender ourselves and we surrender our ego to the other and we're devoted to their happiness rather than, than our own. That is the great romance. That is the great adventure. In some sense, every young person yearns to be called beyond their own selfish desires. In our modern Western consumer society, we have, in many ways, lost that, in, that ability to inspire. In fact, in fact, Jesus is calling us to something that is so much grander than our first romance or so much greater than the adventure of being able to sacrifice for a worthy cause. It is a call to the Great Commission. It is a call to the great plan of our God to bring all people to himself. That is the greatest adventure. That is the greatest romance. And that is what he is calling us to. He is calling us to something that is a chance to be part of something eternal. Our home, our home is not here. It's not in Perth. It's not in Frankston. Our home is with our Father. When we're in heaven, we'll feel more at home than we're feeling right here and now. We are just passing through here. We are pilgrims on a journey. Our home is to share in the beatific vision of heaven. It is not just saving ourselves so that we can go to heaven. That's not good enough for me. If my life was all about getting saved and me getting to heaven, it seems very selfish and very self-centered. What inspires me is that I have been selected. I have been chosen to be part of the team that saves the whole world. Awesome. When I was a young child, and I'd have to stand there and they'd be selecting teams to be playing footy in the street. And there was Peter on one side and John on the other. And they'd say, mm, they're the two captains. I'll have Rob. Mm, I'll have Steve. And I'm saying, dear God, let them pick me. Don't me, let me be the last one standing. <laughs> you know, the guy who was really incompetent got left behind. He was like, oh, you can have bloody Kevin. He's so hopeless. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> But the idea, that, that whole sense of wanting to be picked. Dear God, pick me to be on your team. What a privilege to be part of the team. That's what I yearn for. God could have chosen any way to save the world. But he chose to bring people to him through us. He chose to work through us, as St. Catherine of Siena would say. He has no hands but ours. He has no feet but ours. He has no voice but ours. He chooses to work in the world through us. He doesn't force himself on anybody. 
He allows us, He invites us, He calls us to be on His team so that others can hear the good news. That is awesome. That's incredible. You see, we were saved for something. That's why He saved us. He saved us for the Great Commission. He saved us to make disciples of all people, of all nations. We've got a job to do. What a great, worthy task that is put before us. He didn't just save us from something. He saved us for something. Like Simon, Simon of Cyrene, we are given the privilege to walk with Jesus and to share his burden. The privilege to walk with Jesus and to share his burden. To bear the cross. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A soldier on active service wants to please his commanding officer and so does not get mixed up in the affairs of civilian life. It's a distraction. I pray that I don't get distracted. A good soldier endures hardship and wants to please his commanding officer. As I reflect on my own journey and what led me to join the army as a young teenager, I must admit that there was something inspiring and adventurous about being able to represent my country and to be part of something bigger than myself. I was getting out of my small, working-class, underprivileged environment, and I could be something. I could be a contender. <laughs> and so, you know, there was something that pulled me forward, something that I could sink my teeth into. After I'd been in the army for a few years, I started hearing stories about the special forces. I started hearing stories about the SAS regiment, and I started to wonder whether I would be good enough. It was seen as elite and had an air of mystique, and it seemed a thousand more t times more adventurous than the regular army. But something happened that um, put pay to my plans. I ended up in hospital after a motorbike accident on the road from uh, Frankston up to, um, <clears throat> to the city. One night, I um, went over a car at about 70 miles an hour. I was going a little bit over the speed limit, but it was very late and there were no, no, uh, not many people around. And I was in hospital for five months, no excuses. And so as I lay in hospital, <clears throat> broken and battered, I set as a goal that I would recover and I would excel to the extent that I could apply for the SAS selection course. The hardship and the extreme nature only made it all the more attractive. If life is worth living, it's worth living to the full, right? Helen Keller, who was deaf, dumb and blind, was able to overcome her hardships and excel. She is quoted as saying, life is a daring adventure or nothing at all. Life is a daring adventure or nothing at all. 
Theodore Roosevelt summed it up well when he said, the credit belongs to those who are actually in the arena. Who strive valiantly, who know the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spend themselves in a worthy cause. Who at the best know the triumph of high achievement. And who at the worst, if they fail, they fail while daring greatly. So that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. There were 2,000 soldiers back in 1981 who applied for selection of the SAS. We were put through medical tests and psychological tests as well as fitness tests and then a final selection panel. And out of this number, they chose 127 to undergo the rigorous selection process up in Singleton. You had to really want to achieve entry or else the system would find you out. The uh, three-week selection course, the Carter course, was designed to test your capacity to withstand severe physical and mental stress. How do you think we felt when we arrived? <laughs> Gentlemen, your task, should you choose to accept it, is to undergo severe physical and mental stress. The Army Intelligence Unit were involved as well, and they had ready-made guinea pigs to practice their interrogation techniques on. Sadists. <laughs> Along with a lot of others, over the course of this period, my body began to break down. And the only way that I could get through the process was to focus on the outcome and not the distractions of the here and now. As things got tough, and things will get tough for us in our faith, folks, and the only way that we will get through is keeping our eyes firmly planted on our Saviour. The only way we will get through is to keep our eye on the goal. As things got tough, candidates were encouraged to voluntarily withdraw of their own volition. What was so shocking was that out of the 127 that were selected as the fittest and the ones that were most capable and most promising, 89... 89 pulled out of their own volition, gave up. It was called pulling the pin, as in the parachuting term, when you pull the pin, when you're free-falling and you want to bug out. And so those 89 people gave up. Those 89 people weren't sufficient efficiently focused on the outcome, on the objective. At the end of the course, only 12 people failed. And 26 of us 
were selected into the SAS regiment. I lost six toenails and the bone was showing through from the ball of my foot. <laughs> but I'd been unable to find the pin. If I had a pin, I would have pulled it. <laughs> the only thing that had gotten me through when other stronger soldiers had withdrawn was my tenacity and my commitment to focus on the goal and the mental toughness of knowing that what was going on in my present is not real. I made the commitment to myself and I prayed like I'd never prayed before that God would get me through this, this, um, this temptation, this struggle. And I made the commitment that the only way that I was going to leave this program was either as a successful candidate or in a coffin. It was literally that real that I would do it or I would die trying. Nothing that they could throw at me would break my resolve. The prize that I wanted was to be part of an elite unit and to wear the Sandy Beret. St. Paul was talking about some such thing. We are called to be part of an elite unit. We are part of something much greater than a Sandy Beret. St. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, was talking about the call that the Father has for us today. It is so much more glorious than that Sandy Beret, as glorious as I thought it was. St. Paul again reminds us in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 14. So I run straight towards the goal in order to win the prize, which is God's call through Christ Jesus to the life above. The question, the real question that I have to ask myself is, do I want to be a saint? Have you ever asked yourself that question? It's not about coming to church. It's not about being involved in the community. Do I really want to be a saint? Do I really want to spend myself in a great enthusiasm, in a great devotion? in the worthiest of causes. Do I hesitate? Why do I balk at such a thing? Is it because God calls us to be a saint? And in doing so, it calls us to a radical conversion, to profess the truths of the creed as true, for the world, and not just for me, will challenge the world and cause them to despise me. When I was young and growing up, the idea of being a Christian was about being a good person. Wow, this person, you know, they might not go to church, but they're really good. They're really, they're really Christian. 
Or this person is really nice. Or aren't they noble? They're Christians. The world has changed. Folks, what we are invited to be in communion with is a community that is misunderstood by the world. As the community that Timothy lived in in Ephesus was misunderstood by the Roman Empire and by the world that they lived within. Today, they are saying that Christians are homophobic, that Christians are Nazis and women haters. They misunderstand our message of love. And we are called to love them when they hate us, when they despise us. The Bible tells us we will be despised and spat upon as Jesus was despised and spat upon. And that's what we are inviting our children into. Who are we? Why are we? Because we don't want to be distracted by the things of civilian life. We are called to something that is more glorious and more powerful and more sustaining than anything we could ever imagine. There is nothing and there will be nothing that is comfortable about following Jesus Christ in the 21st century. A counterculture is called for by the Holy Spirit. We are called to renew his church, to renew the culture, to renew the environment that we live in by proclaiming the truth in the face of mounting opposition. Our faith doesn't call us to get along. Our faith doesn't call us to be popular. It calls us to convert. Pope Benedict XVI said that we are moving towards a dictatorship of relativism which doesn't recognise anything as definitive and has as its highest value one's own ego and one's own desires. That is what the world is saying. The world doesn't want to hear a message of truth. It is too confronting and it calls for too radical a change in the way that we live our lives. It prefers to invent pop spirituality like Oprah Winfrey and Obama. It calls for a pop spirituality that doesn't really call us to account, where we can make our own rules that suit us. That is not a biblical response. We are called to a biblical response that is as radical today as it was in Ephesus when the first Christians proclaimed it to the Roman Empire and we have to be every bit as committed as they were. Now that's powerful. That's challenging. That's inspiring. That is something that I would say I would be prepared to lay my life down for. We have to be witnesses to the truth. The root of the Greek word for witness is the same root as martyr. What was the Greek word, Rob? Martus. A witness to the truth. Are we prepared to be witnesses to the truth? Martyrs to the truth. Are we prepared to lay down our life?
You see, the restlessness, the restlessness of the human heart can only find its rest in God. That is the truth. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart. Lots of our friends and neighbours don't know it. But there is something that is in each and every heart. We were made for God. St. Augustine said that nothing else will satisfy us. He said, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, O Lord. The world doesn't know it, but it's yearning for communion with its creator. And they can only find him if we proclaim him. If we proclaim him in a more radical way. If they can see our love and our joy. It's like when Harry met Sally. I'll have what she's having. These people seem to be, there's something they've got. When Mother Teresa is in the, in the slums of Calcutta and there's this joy that is pouring out of her and there's so much despair around and yet she brings joy. This is the witness that we need to bring to our world. <clears throat> so as I traveled through Turkey, we visited the seven cities of the book of Revelation in John's vision, he had a message, a message to the church of Lacedaemon from the Amen, who is the ruler of all that God has created. It is written in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I know what you have done. I know that you are neither hot nor cold. How I wish that you were either one or the other but because you are lukewarm neither hot nor cold I am going to spew you out of my mouth that's unambiguous <laughs> I am going to spew you out of my mouth how many of us are lukewarm in our faith Oh, my God. How many of us have a foot in both camps? We're enjoying the world. The world is a playground, not a battleground. We're just going along, minding our own business. We profess a belief in our Saviour, and we come to church and we tithe as well. On Sunday, I'm flying to uh, the States. I'm going to the Washington Prayer Breakfast. But on the way, I'm going to visit a friend of mine who's got seriously uh, ill with cancer. He always um, calls um, tipping, tithing, uh, tithing, tipping. He says, when you tithe, you tip. You know how you give 10% at the end of your meal? You just give a tip. How many of us are living our life and living the fruits of um, all of the good things that this world has to offer and we just tip God? <clears throat> we are not called to a worldly life. We're not called to enjoy the fruits of the world and then come along to church and to be entertained and to mix with people just like us and then to offer our tip and then to think that we're doing something heroic. We are called to something much more inspiring than that. Are we getting mixed up in the affairs of civilian life? Are we getting distracted? Do we have our eye on the goal? 
Do we have our eyes firmly fixed on the objective or are we distracted by the things of this world that are passing away? Thierry de Chardon said that we are spiritual beings in a human form, on a human journey. C.S. Lewis said that we don't have a soul. We don't have a soul. We are a soul. We have a body. You see, for me, that changes everything. It's not about me and my body and my physical pleasure and everything that's about me. I'm a soul that has a body. Our focus needs to be on things eternal as much as my focus needed to be on the Sandy Beret. No matter how much pain or deprivation or despising was going on, I wasn't going to let it affect me because my eye was on the prize. Our true joy and fulfillment is only found there. The rest is a distraction. We will never reach the potential that Christ has in store for us and Christ has in store for the world. We will never reach the potential unless we realign our lives. A good soldier wants to please his commanding officer no matter what the hardship. Why were we created? The Alpha Course talks about that. Why were we created? That is the question. To know, love and serve the Lord. Do I want to be in constant, conscious contact with my God? Dear Lord, help me to be in constant, conscious contact with you. Constant, conscious contact with God. Every minute of my life, every waking thought, I pray for the grace to better achieve this in my life. I need to really surrender myself to God so that everything I do is for the greater glory of God. I need to become detached from the things of this world so that I can better surrender myself to God. St. Therese of Avila spoke of a life of detachment and carefree acceptance of God's life when she wrote The Interior Castle. She said, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing trouble you. Everything passes. God alone remains. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing trouble you. Everything passes. God alone remains. I suspect that the reason I don't fully surrender to God's will <clears throat> is that I don't truly trust him. I confess. I always feel the need to hold something in reserve for me. My problem, <clears throat> my problem is that I don't recognise that I serve a loaves and fishes God. What a great God we serve. When whatever I give God, he multiplies. The young boy 
You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. At the very place, at the very rock where the loaves and fishes were laid, where a young boy bought what he had, everything that he had, five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus blessed them and multiplied. If I'm afraid that I give something to God, that this mean God will then make me have something less, every time I've trusted God, he's multiplied. What's the matter with me? I serve a loaves and fishes God. So just there, there was a little store that was selling little trinkets and souvenirs. And I bought a little plate with a mosaic on it of the loaves and fishes. And I have it in my study. And I pop my keys in this little, um, on this little porcelain plate to remind me every day that I serve a loaves and fishes God. Amen. And that's going to remind me of his abundance. What are we frightened of? Will I trust his abundance? Will I join his quest? Yes. Do I have the courage to take up my cross and follow him in the way that the sons of Zebedee were prepared to do so many years ago? What is on offer? Where can it make a difference? Where it can make a difference is being part of the greatest story ever told. In his book on positive psychology, Healing the Culture, Robert Spitzer shares the different levels of satisfaction you know, that have been observed in people's lives. You know the song, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, <clears throat> we know why none of us can get some satisfaction. The first level of discovering happiness or trying to seek satisfaction comes from, you know, seeking more food or sex and drugs and rock and roll. And it's symptomatic. It does bring a measure of pleasure or satisfaction, but there's a recognition that there is something more. We all know that there's something more. Keeping up with the Joneses is the next level. This competitive advantage where we feel if we could only live in a better suburb, if we could look down our nose at somebody else, if we could do better than someone else, we feel better about ourselves. But there's always someone who's doing better than us. So no matter how much bigger a house we buy or bigger a car we buy, there's always someone who's doing better than us. This pursuit of money, fame, power, prestige and popularity satisfies some people to a degree, but eventually they come to realise there's more to life if they're really seeking the meaning of life. The third level is being able to be involved in your community, being able to make a lasting difference. But even the atheists do this. It's this philanthropic urge that gives us to do, it, to do things that make a difference. It helps us to gain the respect of our peers and we are reaching for something that's bigger than ourselves. But we know that it's still not it. Robert Spitzer writes about the fact that deep down, for those of us who are honest and seeking the truth, Francis, Francis Schaeffer, great theologian, he talks about the fact that there are two types of people, those that seek the truth 
and those that seek to justify their current position. How many of us seek the truth despite the consequences? We are called to seek the truth and those that us, of us that are being truth, truthful and true to ourselves know that the only satisfaction, the only satisfaction comes from loving and surrendering ourselves to a creator and being loved by him, experiencing his love. This is what truly makes life worth living. This is the most powerful thing. And it's not dependent on anything I can do or anything I can be. It is pure grace. Amen. The gift of grace, the grace to be able to ask for grace, the grace to be able to surrender myself to God and allow Him into my life to change and transform my life, to allow me to be part of the great commission, to the great adventure, to be part of the story, to be part of the quest that He will not achieve without me. That is what is so powerful. See, God loves me. He really, really loves me. He suffered excruciating suffering and he died for me. He yearns for me. All he asks is that I put my total trust in him. And he will never, ever let me down. Through all the bloody adversities that lie in my future. He suffers along with me. That is where fulfillment and purpose and meaning lie. There is no other path for me to follow. I can't afford to push back and get distracted by the affairs of civilian life. I don't welcome discipline. I don't welcome authority. And I don't welcome obedience. But if I only knew what his plans for me and what his plans for me in his plans for the world are, I would tremble. I would tremble at the honour he is bestowing upon me. He is bestowing upon each and every one of us. He is calling us. Like the words of that song, that hymn. Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. I want to be a good soldier, a good soldier on active duty, wants to please his commanding officer. Blessed John Paul II said, we are engaged in a lively battle for the dignity of man. It is how we prepare for that battle and how we conduct that battle that will give us meaning. We were made for this. God wants so much more for us than we would want for ourselves. 
He has blessed us by calling us to participate in his work of salvation. Every bit as much as he blessed Simon of Cyrene, who shared the privilege of carrying the cross of Christ. The credit belongs to God. But I want to be in the arena. I want to strive valiantly. I want to know the great enthusiasms, the great devotions. And I want to spend myself in a worthy cause. I pray, I pray that I won't be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, a soldier on active service, wants to please his commanding officer and so does not get mixed up in the affairs of civilian life. Thank you.